This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. No credentials. Reviewing Rolling Stone 500. Greatest album. We were thinking about this album, getting to this next milestone, number 60, and and we thought we probably needed a guest for this one. This is a unique album. Uh, it's, it's definitely not one that either of us also. are familiar with. In doing some digging, though, I, I guess this story actually goes back farther than this album. One of the things that we did out of the box was just think that we had this brilliant idea that no one had ever thought of. And within the first few months of the Sound Logic <laughs> podcast, we discovered that there was another podcast, the 500 podcast, which is hosted by Josh Adam Myers. Josh is going through the albums from 500 all the way up to number one each week. So slightly different, but similar kind of premise to ours. And each week he has a different guest on. And then a little further down the road, we discovered, oh, wow, someone has actually gone through all 500 albums, except instead of having a podcast about it, they pulled in a bunch of talented artists and reflected on that piece of music in sort of written word form. And that project was called The RS500. You can find it at thers500.com. And uh, Brad Effort is the guy behind that incredible, massive undertaking. Brad, we're really excited to have you on the show with us. And we are also really encouraged by the fact that someone had an idea to tackle 500 of something and made it all the way to the end, which is just uh, something that even though we're 60 <laughs> albums in, we still aren't quite sure if we've got the stomach to, to get through all of these. So um, we're happy to have you here with us. Uh, wondering if you'd just say a word about who you are aside from the RS500. Um, we'll get into the, that a little bit more later. Sure. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I started a project online, but I've got a day job like most people who start projects online and like you guys, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'm a high school, middle school administrator is usually how I talk about myself, I guess. I live out in California and um, I've been teaching for, for years and then working in administration for the past two or three years. So, you know, I work with kids all day long and um, and I love it. Yeah, that's pretty much like um, what my life is outside of doing weird online stuff. <laughs> that's awesome. The project for, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, each album, as I mentioned, uh, from the 500 list, has an essay that accompanies it. Um, some of them are written by Brad, but many are written by other contributors. It's quite the undertaking, and I wanted to read just a, a little blurb from your website, Brad. It says, best of list making is by its very nature a ridiculous venture. And I think that is something that we have held intention the entire time that we've undertaken this this project of ours that um you know at, at the end of each episode we try and figure out was this an appropriate ranking on the the rolling stone top 500 albums list and uh, so much of that is subjective uh, and 
and trying to figure out what that means in the grand scheme of, of pop culture or genre or music is, is just a huge challenge. Um, so what your project does that I, I kind of wish we had stolen from when we began, but, but maybe we've done it kind of accidentally, uh, you say um, that each great album from this list is a backdrop for great creative writing. So as mentioned, from 500 down to number one, um, you find a piece of writing inspired by uh, conversations with the music that's at hand. So, for instance, this one, Trout Mask Replica, listen to the music first, and then you write, essentially, sort of what that music is compelling you. Conversational, uh, retrospective, uh, but really, really powerful, and it's it's fantastic. And I kind of wish that we had discovered this um, before we began, although uh, I think there's also this like tension that I'm feeling in that I don't want to go too far beyond the albums that we've tackled so far. I, I like mm-hmm. reading about something we've already done so that I can kind of go back and remember that same time. I don't want to go really beyond 60 because that feels like dangerous territory that we haven't quite uh, wrestled with yet. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I guess I'm curious, where did the, the idea come from? How many months or years did it take you to accomplish all 500 on the other side of completing it? What, how are you feeling at this point? It's been almost a year. Um, I think by this, by the time this episode comes out, it, it will have been a year since it ended. And, um, you know, it's just been a year of wearing all black. I've been in mourning. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, by, by the time the project was in its last year, we had uh, 100 albums left um, when we were a year out from the, from the end of it. And I was like ready to move on to a new thing by then. <laughs> I was like, I've, I've really sort of created something for myself that I have to see, see through to the end. The RS500 was like a convergence of the two hugest interests in my life, um, which was writing and music. I, I grew up wanting to be a writer for whatever the, like that idea kind of was um i remember being like in like second or third grade and and saying i'm i'm going to be a writer when i grow up and then you know i've gotten older and kind of moved past that a little bit or through (laughs) it i don't know a better way to say it but uh but i pursued writing um for for years and years and years you know I, i was an english and creative writing major in college i i i got my mfa in poetry creative writing um and it was always sort of something that was uh, a big passion of mine. And I still write when I can, I still really enjoy it, but I always sort of loved the community around writing and the opportunities that I saw and had and sort of uh, came across to, to meet people who were interested in, in doing it and talking about it and sort of helping each other like edit their pieces and swap ideas and I loved everything about that and when I graduated from grad school where I was in a program for two years it was really intense and made great friends who I loved and then it ended and I suddenly didn't have like a group of people that I talked to about writing all the time or who gave me great ideas for my own writing Um, and so I really wanted to start something that could bring me to other people and vice versa oh, yeah. i guess um i i just really wanted to make a community for myself and to sort of find a way to to network i guess in a in like 
a not gross way. <laughs> you know, music has always been sort of uh, another huge passion of mine. I worked at a record store as my first job in high school, and I, uh, I did that for three, three and a half years. And at the beginning of it, I, I worked for free, essentially, but, but they gave me as many albums as I wanted as payment. Um, and so I would just go there every day after school and just clean records and then take home a stack of like albums and CDs. And, and it was just a huge musical education for me. And, and then I eventually got a paycheck and got paid, but I would spend all of my money on albums and CDs at like a Borders <laughs> or a Barnes and Noble. So it's funny, I, I talk to people who, who I know now and they were like, I, you know, I went to college and I had all this money that I had gotten from my high school job. And I was like, I went broke to college <laughs> because I, you know, I had a job for three years, but I spent every penny I had on, on music. That, just having that job was a huge education for me. And I learned so much and I learned it at a really eager age. I guess it, it would have been yeah. just an age where I was like, I want to be formative. Yeah, it was huge. And, and I really wanted to be like introduced to things that were going to be strange and unusual and um, I had a very high schooler mindset of like Elvis and the Beatles are crap and I don't want to listen to them and blah, 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 like very like anti-establishment. Uh, and so I, I was always sort of trying to find ideas and music and sounds that were going to sort of not sound like anything else, I guess, just because I really immersed myself in having such an open sort of idea in mind about it. It, uh, it was just a huge education for me. And, and I just maintained that as I went into college and throughout my life, I wrote a whole bunch of poems in grad school about Patsy Cline. And that was a huge obsession of mine, essentially, for a year and a half straight. So the RS500 was just sort of inevitable in a way. It was my, my two biggest loves coming together. Initially, the idea of it was I would write an essay or a short story for all 500. And it was to give me a project to keep writing um, because after school I wasn't really writing anymore so I was like I need a project so I invented this project where I would I would write like 500 essays or stories one of them for each album on the list and then I sort of started to do the math in my mind and realized that if I did that it would take me about 10 years and that was <laughs> if I <laughs> yeah that was if I published and wrote something once a week and and maintain that pace um, and, you know, I just kind of thought if I do that, a majority of them are going to be so bad because I just have to pump them out. Um, and so what if I did it twice a week and then it took five years? Um, and then I just started to realize, you know, I know all these people now who are great writers. And um, why don't I invite them to to join me in my strange quest? Uh, and then word kind of spread and people who wrote for it told their friends and they told their friends and they told their friends and then on you know online people just kind of came across it and i had so many people write for me who i was huge admirers of and um i made so many close friends and confidants and people who i just really admire and i met them all through this project so it you know we ended up with um something like 105 contributors including me i guess so like 104 wow. but wow. um you know and that included like close friends and my wife and my little sister and all these people that kind of all came together to publish 
essays and short stories that um, I just thought were amazing and brilliant. And I've had people tell me, you know, that that project was my favorite thing I've ever had to write for because there were no real stakes. (laughs) And and I hear that. And, you know, I think that, that there's kind of a part of me that can hear that as like, a dig or something but but i definitely don't it it comes across to me as just like it's it's a fun exercise in something i never would have done otherwise and you know there's nothing really at stake too much it doesn't need to be that long i just need to find a connection in some way to this album i i had a close friend of mine who wrote who wrote for it a whole bunch and she uh she would always purposely choose albums that she had never even heard of and just to write to like to to listen to them and write about them and oftentimes she would tell me like why did i pick this i hate this album and then she would be forced into writing something (laughs) you know i i loved that 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 the project had that effect on people It, it took us five years almost to the day it's over now it's been over for about a year and you know i've i've got a new project now and so you know i've I've moved on, as they say. It always has a special place in my heart. I love it so much. That's so neat. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have so many questions now. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a really long-winded story. Sorry about that. First of all, I will I will say this. We started and we were kind of, part of it was like, oh, it'll be a fun thing the two of us can do. And, uh-huh. you know, we really didn't do much research. And it's like, <laughs> ah, no, I don't think anyone's ever really done anything like this. And now... You know, discovering the other podcasts and discovering this project, it's like, oh man, I kind of wish I had taken from these other things. But at the same time, you know, it's our own thing, and, and that's what you guys did. You created yeah. your own thing. I've read a few of the essays, and they are just wonderful. And one of our favorite things on the Sound Logic podcast is to hear other people's stories and mm-hmm. how music has been a part of their life and continues to be. Even for your one contributor who <laughs> who wrote pieces on albums she had never heard, it still has now become a part of, of who she is. Mm-hmm. And I just love that. Ben and I both also feel that music is such, such a powerful part of our lives, especially now when we can get anything we can imagine. It's at our fingertips and we can access it. Yeah. There was a time not too, too long ago when... It wasn't that easy. And there was a time when, I mean, we're not talking about it just yet, but this somewhat obscure, strange album landed in your hands mm-hmm. physically. <laughs> and you couldn't yeah. have just clicked a button at home or anywhere around the world and found it and you got yeah. it. You know, so that is special. Anyways, I'm going to stop. Ben, you ask your questions because okay, I'll just start but... rambling. <laughs> okay, but, but Mike, it's it's the wrong episode to say that because this album isn't on Spotify and it's completely out of print now. Uh, that, well, that's that's true. <laughs> that is true, but I mean... It, this, this record used to be so accessible. It used to be everywhere. And the fact that it's not on Spotify, look, guys, I'm turning this episode into a crusade Spotify, they will hear they will hear me on this episode and they will be forced in some way to get Trout Mask on. Real like yeah. like a democratic a democratic push for the people. We That's we want funny. it. That's funny. <laughs> well I'll start drafting the emails now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> One thing I guess that, that we didn't spend too much time debating, but we've kind of 
wondered as this has gone along why we were gravitating towards the 2012 list when there was a 2003 mm -hmm. list we also discovered this coffee table book that's a slightly different third version of the list as well was there ever any moment where you thought oh maybe it's the maybe it's the original list that i need to go after or was there a reason in particular that you were uh focusing in on the 2012 lists as you went through these 500 albums i think i just wanted like um the most up-to-date information i guess mm -hmm. i i was re re-researching today sort of how they made this list and i mean the 2012 one is so fascinating because they made the original list by essentially sending out a survey to something like right. 270 people in the industry right and that's like producers and artists and critics and everybody and then they took all of and they basically asked them like create a list of what you think are the greatest albums of all time and whether that was a hundred or what i don't know but they they took everybody's answers and then they probably did a little bit of their own editorializing and rearranging here and there but i think i i do believe that essentially it came from all the information from all these other people and then what they did in 2009 is they resent a list to or like a, a question to a hundred people and I don't know how much crossover there was with the original pack. And they asked them, okay, what are the greatest albums of the 2000s? Because it was right. right at the end of that period. Right. Um, yeah. And then they took all that info and did some editorializing and kind of added them into the earlier list. So you have really <laughs> strange things happening in the 2012 um, idea of it, where you have like Californication by RHCP, which is an album that was huge when it came out and i don't really think has like kept that esteem or that popularity i think for Staying people calm. like yeah. me when it came out yeah like i don't think that people now talk about it like the great californication a classic <laughs> album and right, yet it's right. higher than like illmatic which is one of the most classic albums of all time and and you just have yeah like a weird sort of splatter of things happening. You have two albums by No Doubt in the original list, and then they're both gone by 2012. <laughs> and by 2012, Rolling Stone was like, actually, No Doubt, they don't matter anymore. Or maybe Tragic right. Kingdom is still on it, but like, but they're essentially like, actually, time has told us in 10 years that, that like, here's a band that was really important and they're actually not important anymore. Our Canadian heart broke missing uh, Atlantis Morissette uh, who was on the original Atlantis and got Morissette, yeah. bumped off the next is she totally axed is she, is she gone yeah. from the 2012 yeah. oh my that's insane because that is one of the biggest albums of all time that's crazy um yep. and you know I, I don't know I I think I I went with the 2012 because I found it fascinating and um and I thought that it was the most up-to-date and just that the way that they put it together seemed like not very logical <laughs> and so yeah. i was like some of the stuff on here is going to be really really interesting to have people write about and it was so <laughs> our biggest fear is that by the time we finish this and we're doing we're not doing 50 a, a year uh because we've taken a few breaks here and there so we're doing not quite 50 years so this is going to take us over 10 years to do yep and we're <laughs> we are shaking in our boots that at any moment in the next nine <laughs> years, they're going to announce an updated list. And you, then, yeah, you know uh, that it's it's uh, been it's been almost ten years since the last list, 
everybody on Rolling Stone is in quarantine. They need stuff to do. You know that right now. Oh, they God. are putting together their pitch for the next list. I guarantee you. I'm sorry, guys, but you just got to shift gears halfway. I mean, the, the nice thing about a project like this is that uh, it's similar to my quest to see a baseball game in every stadium. They keep tearing them down and building yeah. new ones. So it'll never yeah. it'll never end. Like, just, yeah, that's right. What, wow. what we do until we retire. Right? And, um, that's so poetic. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Another question I'm curious about, Brad, you chose to start at the bottom and work your way up. We took maybe yeah. the easier approach, knowing that there was good stuff at the top and started there thinking, well, we may <laughs> not even make it to the end. Let's start with the good stuff. Was yeah. you, you mentioned that like tension of like, you know, knowing you had a hundred albums left and kind of losing some steam. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment where you thought, boy, I'm glad we did it in this order because I really do want to get to number one. And do you think it would have kind of fizzled out if you'd started at the top and worked your way down? I literally never thought about that. Like, would, <laughs> would I have given up at number 400 had I gone the other way? That's a great question. I, there's a there's a chance. There's a chance that had I gone from <laughs> 1 to 500, I would have been like, all the rest of these are bad albums. I'm quitting now. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just love a countdown. I've, I'm obsessed, yeah. you yeah. know, I, I'm obsessed with making like, like a top 10 of the year and who's going to be number one. And there's, there's <laughs> such like a, a climactic energy to getting to, to number one and saying, we did it. We made it like we're at number yeah. one. I, I also kind of knew from the outset, I mean, like from day one, I knew I wanted to write about um, Sergeant Peppers, which is at number one, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. I already, you know, like five years ahead of time, I sort of already knew I wanted to write about it around um, with a little help from my friends, just as like mm -hmm. a way to wrap up the whole project. And then five years later, it's exactly what I did. So I just, I think I had that idea going into it already. And I just love the idea of going, of going backwards <laughs> and getting to like an exciting, like a number one position. Yeah. 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 It's like the carrot there yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Was there any lull in the list where you thought, boy, this stretch from 370 oh to, to 410 is just a real dud? Or <laughs> There, okay, I, I have very strong opinions about this list. I, <laughs> I, I think it'd be weird if I didn't, I, you know, I'm bringing it up right now kind of as I talk to, to really give you a, a straight answer. But I, I mean, absolutely. I think that 500 albums is, is a lot. And you, I think that you've got kind of a dud run from probably like 400 to 200 and I and I think that last hundred <laughs> was only was only not a dud for me because it was exciting for my project um, and then new. I think I got far enough where I was like you know but but what's what's exciting about about this list is that all of a sudden you come across like a great album and you're like mm -hmm. yes you're like I had two weeks of like just why is this on here um and like nobody wants to write this and what am i doing here and then you kind of have like a light at the end of the tunnel where you're like yes it was all worth it to just spend time with like don henley for so long to finally get to like a good album <laughs> yeah it's probably like in that like late 300s to to like mid 200s okay. kind of part but but there's a ton of great albums like 
kind of in that dud. I mean, I think I think both of the Randy Newman albums are in that are in that stretch, and he's like my favorite guy. So, you know, it's it's all yeah. good in patches here here and there. I, I think already we're sensing some of that. That there'll be an album that we bump into where we're both like, "Ooh, that wasn't too much fun." Yeah. And the very next week, you know, we're right back on that. What you're sounding like is maybe those lulls in between will go even longer as we as we keep going, but. Um, It'll be fun. Yeah, I, I just think you could take an angle on any of these albums and have a good time with it. So yeah. like even yeah. if even if I think that the music is bad, or in my case, like if the person who wrote that essay, if they think like, why did I choose this? I think this album is terrible. You can have a good time with that as much as you could with an album that's like your favorite album of all time. The Velvet Underground and Nico album was one that neither of us really thought very highly of, but our guest was just over the moon about it. And it was so yeah. formational for him that I I think my appreciation of the album changed just in that episode. Like just in the, you know, hour and a half that we were recording that night, you know, something clicked that hadn't in the, you know, yeah. 10 or 15 times that I'd listened to it before. Uh, it was hearing, like like you said, and like you referenced as well, Mike, the stories from someone else um, have that power to be yeah. transformative. Yeah, that that would happen with me a good amount, a good amount yeah. with my project too, where um, a piece could be so good that if I wasn't really investing time into the album itself, which would happen a lot, I might like really go back to it and think okay, let me try to see it through their eyes or through somebody yeah. else's eyes who, who it means a lot to. And just coming at it from that perspective can be a really a really great experience, I think. Just your passion and the way you talk about it and the memories, it is really resonating with me and what we're doing here because so much of it is not just about an album and the details of it. It's about how people have connected to it. And those have been some of our fondest moments as I said before, the stories coming through and then also having our eyes open to new things where it's an album I le never listened to before and I got to hear it because we're doing this and I'm so happy that now it's a part of who yeah. I am. Yeah. And also albums like Velvet Underground and Nico is a really good example, Ben. Albums that we listened to that I went, uh, that wasn't my thing. And then hear someone share about it and go, I need to give that a second chance. Yeah. I need to go back to that. And that's been a part of our story here as well in this project. So this is, it's like, man, I wish we had connected with you at uh, the outset because it's kind of very parallel, very cool. What's kind of your two um, musical educations? Like how, how did you guys get really into music? Did you have a person or people who like introduced you to music? Was it your parents? I'm, I'm just, I'm always interested in, where that comes from my my musical education was so intense in my high school years and like i met people who put albums into my hands and said like here is a masterpiece and you should really like this <laughs> and like because i was so impressionable it meant so much to me so i'm just really interested in kind of how yeah. that was created for you well before we do that i i, get, I want you to just continue there uh like what how was it introduced we're in your band and also because yeah. of, I, I think time is really important because it when when you grew up shapes that yep. um so kind of did that happen for you and uh what kind of bands were you listening to when you were getting into that and and starting into play music yourself 
So I grew up with parents who played music that I didn't like. It is really different, I think, from a lot of people I know who grew up with parents who really influenced their um, taste in music. What I've loved about growing older, I, I know this is sort of a tangential answer, but what, what I've loved about growing older so much is learning to love all the music that I grew up with and hated. Um, <laughs> and like my, my dad like loved John Prine. When I was growing up, John Prine was his guy and he listened to John Prine all the time. And I just thought like, I can't handle this. It's not, it's so boring. And now John Prine, RIP, unfortunately, like he is, he is like a great influence on me. And like, I love him and I love his writing, his poetry. And that, and that really came to me really like late in life. And my mom was really into um, Indigo Girls is another great example where I grew up just like having Indigo Girls on all the time. I was like, mom, can I please put in one album of my own? Like it's a Velvet <laughs> Underground album. I promise you, <laughs> you'll like it. And then, you know, now Indigo Girls have written like some of my all time favorite songs <laughs> and I've just gotten <laughs> older and, and my, my musical taste has, has changed in a lot of way. And yet so much of what I consider to be my favorite albums of all time have, have sort of always been there. My real education, I guess, came sort of twofold. Um, I worked at this record store in Fairfax, Virginia, for three years. And I got that job essentially from my closest friend in high school, who I met when I was a freshman in high school. He was already uh, going over to that record store every day after school. He was a year older uh, than me. And I became really close with him and he started taking me over to the record store and his music knowledge and his, his taste essentially was so wide ranging, like just the scope of it was enormous. And I, you know, I uncovered the other day, a list of albums that he wrote as like a note for me in school in high school. And all the albums on that list are outrageous. Just like it's like a mixture of like jazz stuff and just like acoustic stuff and then like krautrock stuff and crazy stuff in these genres that for me as like a, a 15 year old, I would never have found otherwise. Um, and so his, his knowledge and his passion for it was huge for me because he gave me everything that essentially I know now as like, the classics that I love, both classic classics wow. and like personal classics for me that I'm like, I never would have found um, Randy Newman. Again, an example for like, just thought of him as like a Pixar guy. And like, he did like all the score for like kids movies. And then I had a friend who was just like, actually Randy Newman is like the greatest artist alive. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he introduced me to like Trap Called Quest and Wu-Tang Clan and just all these all these artists wow. that are huge for me now, um, Trout Mask included. So I, I was in a band with him uh, for three or four years in high school going into college. Um, and we were doing really experimental stuff. And so his, his influence was just huge on me. And then just working at a record store is a huge music education for anybody who, who gets to have that job. It's still the best job I've ever had in my life. Um, and you just, you, you meet so many people who are so knowledgeable and so passionate about all different kinds of music. And so when you're at a young enough age that 
you are hungry to have really strong opinions about something, um, people come in and they have their own strong opinions and you sort of adopt it as your own and it and it just comes on to you so strongly so that's that's where it sort of came up for me and and i've just been hungry to find what's out there ever since and our access to music now is totally open and it's it's been so interesting to watch that happen because in one hand i'm like i could listen to any album that i love or that i've always wanted to find and it's right here and at the other hand, I scroll through my Spotify for 20 minutes trying to figure out like exactly what album am I in the mood for right now. So I, I had, you know, a collection of albums that was huge and then I sold it all and got a Spotify and I have it all again now on my phone and on my computer. But I'm, I'm always just like, how do I <laughs> how do I choose what's, yeah. what I pick out? Yeah. In my early 30s, so I was... Um, I was in high, I graduated high school in 06. So the year, so I was in high school when like Arcade Fire really broke big and like Sufjan Stevens and Pitchfork really broke big. And so all this sort of indie music pop boom that exploded in the early 2000s really happened right at the time that I was at the age when I wouldn't give it any time of day. And I was like, this stuff right, is too right, popular. Right. And a Pitchfork 9.0, I refuse to listen to this album. <laughs> and then I, you know, and then I got older and I was like, okay, actually maybe like music critics are people who are also passionate about music and are smart. <laughs> we were both born in 1982. So uh, just a few years older. So that wave was uh, college for us. And yeah. I think I even had a Pitchfork subscription for a while in college. Yep. Mike, do you want to share first about a lot of my music listening was honed in the in the mid to late nineties and early two thousands. I've always been a music fan. It's funny because people often say, you know, they grew up with musical parents. It um I have parents who my mom is quite musical. She plays piano, she's a great vocalist. Uh my dad uh, actually can sing quite well, but he's not really a musician and, and he does love music. So there wasn't really music played in the house a lot. Instruments, uh, they didn't play a lot, but there was always music around us. And Ben and I both grew up in a church and the denomination is Mennonite. And one of the traditions in the Mennonite church is singing and singing in four-part harmony and all the hymns. So it's always interesting to go to an event with someone who's not used to that like maybe a funeral or a wedding and all of a sudden the whole congregation starts to sing sometimes without even any accompaniment and everybody's singing in perfect harmony i love that and people kind of look around and go whoa it's like everyone around us is in a choir and then to us to me i kind of go like well it's always just been like that and in more recent years i kind of look around and go wow that is something very special i grew up having an appreciation for vocal music and it also really hones your ear because I learned how to uh, harmonize and hear vocal harmonies uh, just by listening to voices around me and not necessarily yeah, yeah. learning how to read it on a page. When I got into high school and we were able to play instruments, I chose the saxophone and then I started learning how to read music. And being in music class and going all the way through high school, that honed my appreciation. They taught us about uh, classical music, Renaissance, Baroque period, 
learned about jazz, all those other things. So I really rounded out my listening as well and kind of knowledge of how music works. And finally, I had a very profound music teacher and band director all through high school uh, who was, I want to say, very serious. He was serious and quite strict and would get very emotional (laughs) when Mm -hmm. we would play music, especially if we played it wrong. And (laughs) I don't want to say that to make it sound negative, but he taught us how to play, how to phrase, and how to appreciate music. And very rarely he would talk about the music that he was passionate about. But when he did, it was bands like Chicago Mm. and Boston and these classic rock bands. And that brings me to the next part. Growing up, you know, I listened to the stuff in the 90s that was new. Uh, Green Day, Offspring, Nirvana. I loved that 90s rock. Uh, We talked about No Doubt. I loved all that stuff. And one thing that Ben and I both got into was ska, very Mm -hmm. specifically Christian ska and punk, which is like a very niche little (laughs) genre. What what are some of the Christian ska bands? I'm going to do some research as you're talking because I'm obsessed with this idea as a genre. It's (laughs) funny because... because, um, my wife is listening to a podcast called Good Christian Fun where they explore yeah. elements of uh, Christian pop culture and all these people calling in and they talk about a specific band of people who grew up and love this stuff. And I'm like, yep. yes, that was me. Our favorite ska bands growing up were the Orange County Supertones. Yep, I do know that band, actually. The Insiders, okay. spelled with a, a YZ, I believe. And uh, wow! And one of one of my very favorites was Five Iron Frenzy. Yeah, Five Iron Frenzy, classic. So those those were the some of the Christians, and we went and we saw them in concert, and we went to different Christian music festivals, <laughs> punk bands like MXPX, yeah, um, that we grew up on. The list goes on, but I remember a time in my life where I said to myself, and even out loud ska is the best type of music there is and i will never change my opinion on that (laughs) i don't think that lasted very long (laughs) but you know that's the the arrogance of a you know a 17 year old boy like best ever and nothing's ever going to change so that's kind of the the jumping point but i'm so thankful that i grew up with some of that earlier education of a traditional vocal choral style because even in high school and i was listening to this stuff and ben you'll know because you came i i also i joined a a mass choir in toronto and was able to perform handel's messiah with them at the age of 16 Um, and i was in the chorus um and so and then i'm going home and i'm putting five iron frenzy on the stereo (laughs) afterwards right so it's like I'm so thankful that I had that because as I've gotten older and mature and been able to look at the world and the world of music through much more welcoming eyes, I've been able to invite all these other things into my listening sphere. Pop music, country, avant-garde, which we'll talk about very shortly, um, and still have a great love for jazz. And jazz is such a broad and vast genre and there's so many different facets to it and some of it's very challenging i'm still able to listen to that and it's great uh, i'll turn this over to you ben in a moment but it's great working with ben who not only is one of my oldest friends and we shared a lot of those but ben has a great appreciation for music without some of the and i will say again very limited 
formal training um, that I've had and reading music and doing some of that. And I'm not a professional musician at all, but I did play a lot. And I know, Ben, you've played as well. But I think I went a little deeper in some of that and some of the technical side of it and can... Ben and I can bounce off. Ben has such a, again, a broad appreciation for all sorts of different music. One thing I will say of Ben that he, certainly in his younger years, was able to witness a lot of live music and see all these different bands. So it's been great to hear about his journey there. Uh, and and so now we're able to share this together and kind of uh, work <laughs> as a team. So that that's, that's kind of my jumping point. And certainly growing up in a mostly rural semi-urban white area you know we listen to a lot of classic rock radio so that's kind of a much as the rolling stone 500 list is kind of got its center sort of grounded in that classic rock genre i'd say that's where i fall back to uh and and moving out of the 90s and into some my favorite bands so my favorite bands moving into adulthood and the ones i still listen to today would be coldplay John Mayer, I'm a big fan of his music, even though as a person, sometimes I'm not as big <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> and then and then lastly, a Canadian band called uh, the Sam Roberts Band is uh, cool. one that I followed for. And of course, the Tragically Hip, which is mm-hmm. kind of rock royalty up here. So yeah, uh, that that's me. I hope I didn't go too long, Ben. So I'll turn it over <laughs> to you now. You can share your story. The producer side of my brain is trying to figure out what to do with this. Uh, now we're being interviewed. <laughs> Maybe this is like a spinoff <laughs> podcast of our guests interview. Look, us. I just, I just wanted to find a way to get the tragically hip into this episode. <laughs> I needed to like find a backer Perfect. way to get to get the tragically hip in. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to add. Mike did a pretty good job um, of walking through. We share a lot, at least for the first twenty years of our lives, of um, that you know, Mennonite church influence. And I think also a sort of um, protected music upbringing where mm-hmm. you were yeah. you were allowed to put on music pretty much any time of day or night in our house, as long as it was purchased at a Christian bookstore. And the albums that were not sort of had to be kind of greenlit by my parents first. Like they, I, I don't know, put them on after I went to bed or something and like make sure it was approved before. My we dad did the exact it. same thing. My dad would wait until until we went to bed and play. Uh, we we got uh, jagged we got jagged little pill taken away from us actually when I was a kid because oh, no. because yeah. we got it through what um, Columbia House Columbia and House. then it came yeah it came and my dad was like what is this I think I think there was a parental advisory sticker on it and then he listened to it and he was like I can't have my kids listening to this she says the f word so that was jagged little pill when I was a kid. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, Pearl Jam's Vitology is one that, for me, I think it was Mm -hmm. actually, I don't even think my parents pressed play. It was just the cover art was so, it was like old medical equipment and weird lyrics. And they were just like, nope, nope, send it back. Um, But yeah, I I don't know that I'd add a whole lot much more. I think um, this comes up fairly frequently on this podcast, but we picked sweet corn uh, summers of high school and college for a local corn uh, producing company, sweet corn producing company. One of the great things about being out in the field besides hanging out with our buddies all summer long was that their, the radio was just constantly going. And so, you know, we'd play games like who could name the artist fat first and fastest or like have big debates about where uh, a song or artist fits in the sort of greatness of, of usually classic rock or rock music in general. Um, so even though, you know, home 
home gave us one very specific kind of thing. There was this other world that began opening up, I think, as we started getting a bit more freedom of our own. And uh, your comments, Brad, about uh, spending most of your income on on music made me chuckle. I was thinking about, like, yep. going... <laughs> You know, working 12-hour days in the sweet corn field and taking a giant paycheck to uh, HMB in Canada or Future Shop, yep. one of those <laughs> things, and just like spending the entire thing on CDs. And um, yeah, yeah, it was it's a great moment in time. We had two good friends who went off to music college, and I remember those summers in particular. We also picked corn with them. When we'd go into the stores, they would do things like your friend did and say like. If you consider yourself a music fan, you need to have a copy of this, and they just sort of yeah. put it in your put it in your pile and say like, "This is required listening, whether you like it or not." <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I'm really appreciative for for some of those moments. There are a few duds in there as well. I think um, Snow Patrol was one that Dustin thought I really needed to listen to for some reason. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what was going on there in his head? <laughs> Maybe he just wanted me to spend money that day. I don't know. The uh, just a few weeks ago. I kind of had a pivot moment. I don't remember even who our guest was. Maybe it was Barry Taylor when we were talking about the Sex Pistols. We were reflecting that, you know, listening to that kind of punk, A, it wouldn't have been allowed when we were going through our Christian yeah. punk and scoff days, but B, we also lived sheltered enough lives that we probably would have been too shocked by what was going on in the music. Yeah. Um, and yet we were listening to a genre that felt really edgy. So we'd go to these Christian yeah. Scott punk shows and there'd be, you know, teenagers there with mohawks and stuff and the kids out in the parking lot smoking. And, um, Scandal. And it was like, wow, we're living on the edge here. But I think that allowed <laughs> us, like, it gave us this slight little taste of, of permission to push outside of the bubbles that we'd been raised in. I think a lot of my personal worldview even even sort of theological understanding as I've moved into professional ministry was shaped by like that early permission to like push the line a little bit that I'm really, really grateful for now. I think even as we were starting this project, I kind of laughed at that moment of my life. And now I'm, I'm learning to kind of appreciate that weird yeah. safe punk <laughs> uh, and what it had, has given me sort of uh, many years later. So yeah, it's all um, context. It yep. all depends on the context that, that it was made and the context that you're hearing it and what you're allowed and not allowed to hear. I think that's right. You guys were like the perfect audience for um, sex pistols, really. Like they wanted people <laughs> who couldn't handle yeah. how intense it yeah. was to hear a record like that. So right. it's great. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page on Instagram or through our SoundLogic podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.